In our second installment of our Change Through Legislation series, Representative Ruth Richardson rejoins us to discuss initiatives she is leading at the Minnesota House of Representatives. Welcome to Counter Stories, a podcast by people of color, for people of color, and everybody else. My name is Luz Maria Frias, Deputy Attorney General with the state of Minnesota. Any comments or opinions or remarks should be solely my own and not attributed to my employer. Don Eubanks, Associate of Dendros, Cultural Consultant and member of the Mille Lacs Band of Ojibwe Indians. I'm Anthony Galloway, Executive Director of the Arts Us Center for the African Diaspora and Senior Partner at Dendros Group. And I'm Holly Lee, owner of the Other Media Group and producer of Counter Stories. We have a very special guest returning uh, to our program today. For the second week in a row, we have State Representative Ruth Richardson. Thank you for having me again today. It's great to be able to be back in the space with you all and excited to continue our conversation. As we are as well. There's so much to talk about. We're going to jump right in if that's okay. Uh, you were so helpful help, helping us understand uh, the work that you've done at the legislature last uh, week that we thought we'd bring you back and and go through a, an entire list of additional uh, bills that you had uh, served as a chief author. And some of these bills did pass uh, out of the uh, chambers and were signed into law, but a number of these have not. And we'd like to know um, the inspiration for some of these bills, but also what the roadblocks were uh, for some of these bills as well. So we're going to dive right in here. And the first one that we're going to talk about is the Emmett Lewis Till Victims Recovery Program. Well, it's really timely to talk about uh, that bill. Um, this uh, weekend, there are a lot of events that are going on uh, commemorating what would have been uh, Emmett uh, Lewis Till's 80th birthday. And the inspiration um, behind this bill is really the family of, of, of uh, Emmett Till. Uh, Deborah Watts, who lives here in the Twin Cities, has been doing a lot of work to um, not only keep the memory of uh, Emmett Till alive, but they're still on a quest for accountability for the last um, uh, living individual who was involved in uh, the, the case, um, an older woman who uh, uh, made the false allegations that led to the brutal murder of, of, of Emmett Till. And this bill is really um, forward thinking in terms of thinking about uh, reconciliation, uh, uh, healing, and is all about um, having families who have been impacted by um, lynchings like the, the Till family was uh, impacted by or other forms of state-sanctioned violence, being able to have um, a, a space for support, for um, uh, trauma support, and to be able to have um, services wrapped around um, surviving uh, family members. And so um, that bill is really about um, supporting the survivors who continue to live on, um, you know, faced with uh, the, the brutal um, uh, murders or um, events that have impacted uh, their lives, much like what happened uh, to Emmett Till's family. How I'm, I'm curious how how far back um, do do the redressions get to get to go? I mean, the first thing that's popping into my mind is is descendants in the community in Duluth uh, with the Duluth lynchings here in Minnesota. And so I'm just curious how far back somebody could reach to try to do repair or harm because there's community reverberations even today. Yeah, that's a great that's a great question. And the way that the bill is uh, drafted, it's pretty open. It's it's in terms of it's it's open um, and and thinking about the uh, the lynchings uh, in Duluth. Um, or Mankato, I guess. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yep. Uh, those descendants would be eligible for the support that's laid out within this uh, within this bill as well. We know there's a long legacy 
uh, within not only the state of Minnesota, but within, you know, the country as well. And there's a lot of work to get to uh, accountability. There's a lot of work to get to healing. And we've got a lot of work to do to get to any form of justice. Hey, Anthony, I'm wondering if you could uh, enlighten our audience for those who may not be totally up to speed on on Emmett Till. You know what I'm saying? Sure. There's a, a family connection. My family is from Mississippi. And so... Um, I actually get this story both from the historical record, but also from the stories of folks in my family. Um, you know, I am um, loosely connected familially uh, to Louis uh, Till's uh, the the witness in the stand who pointed at at uh, the men who who were acquitted, you know, um, wrongly, but who were acquitted of of the murder. He said, "Darhi, that's that's part of my family." Um, but Emmett Till uh, was a young man who um, his mother had sent him to Mississippi uh, to live with relatives who, um, like so many folks throughout our history, um, had an encounter with a white woman in, in um, the culture of the South at the time. Um, uh, he, they, the, the accusation was that he whistled um, at this woman. Um, we now know that that there's more to the story than that, and that may not even happen. But um, the perception that he somehow even looked or made some kind of of interaction with a white woman led to um, some men uh, lynching him um, and and beating him, um, you know, to the point not of disfiguration. Some men, the the woman's husband, right, right, <laughs> and you know, I'm, I'm the the the. The thing that may stick out in folks' minds is that his mother decided to have an open casket um, to put on full display the brutality of these men um, killing this young this young boy, um, and so that um, was a huge turning point for many folks. Again, much of our movements throughout history, unfortunately, um, come after the blood sacrifice is paid for the consciousness in the United States. And so this is another one of those examples that sparked a whole lot of folks to get off their behinds and get involved um, in many of the movements for change that were happening around. So it, it, it helped to spark um, and end some complacency from some folks and ignite an even deeper fire under those who were already out in gathering. How would people find out about um, the benefits of this bill and, you know, if or when it passes? So unfortunately, the bill has not yet passed. It's just been introduced with, uh, within the House. So we're still we're still working. So there is definitely a need um, for community support when we go back into session next year to hopefully be able to get this across the um, uh, across the finish line. And I, I think that the 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 story of Emmett Till is is one that is extremely powerful for many of the reasons that um, you know that Anthony just laid out as well. Um, my mom, as I shared last week, grew up in Mississippi. My dad grew up in Alabama and they grew up um, in the trauma of this. I mean this this the the lynching, the murder of Emmett Till, um, it is something that, to this very day, um, evokes uh, so much uh, emotion in, in each of them because they were growing up in the shadow uh, of of this trauma. What 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 stands out in the Emmett Till case and in in, in Mississippi in general, you know, just to to for the historical context piece, because I think this this bill you said earlier, this bill also would apply to the Dakota Thirty Eight or the women and children that were interned in, in that concentration camp next to Fort Snelling, or, or or so many of the unnamed histories. I mean, at one point, Governor Ramsey put a bounty on Dakota scalps that you could turn in for for money at Fort Snelling. Um, as a complete, um, you know, slap in the face of Dakota peoples who have their sacred origin story there at the at the waters below it. Um, but the um, I think the the bill also is a very powerful statement um, that we um, that we won't stand for the kind of of kind of mob violence mentality that had to be brutal in Mississippi. And the reason I say had to be is because for much of Mississippi's history, black folks outnumbered whites. 
And we get a lot of our most egregious um, uh, racial enforcement of both slavery and Jim Crow from this area because of the in the 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 power that could exist should should folks um, have bound together. And so there's a particular history of that brutality. I think this bill also was a statement that says we won't stand for it, and there will be some redressing of that in the same way that Southern planters. Um, so, uh, uh, slave owners who lost property and land were recompensed by the U.S. government um, after the re- after Reconstruction, and so there's a, this, this goes a long way in attempting to try to balance some of those things. And thank you for the historical context, Anthony, because I think when people hear Emmett Till or they hear the story, they think all oh, that stuff happens in the South, right? And they don't really understand how that might apply to folks in Minnesota, but but it does. So thank you for for saying all that. And for me, the, this goes, yes, I acknowledge the brutality, but for me, it goes beyond that. It's, it's the terroristic um, environment and culture that was intentionally created by folks in the South and here in the North, right? They, they engage in this uh, barbaric behavior for the sole reason of intimidating and, and quashing uh, folks in the community to make sure that you knew your place, so to speak, right? Um, and so this is it's it's really important as the the awakening continues to happen in the U.S. that we name this as a terroristic activity uh, that perpetuated many of the communities across the country. With that in mind, you know. Um Along those same lines, unfortunately, um, a news bit came out in the past day or two that that uh, unfortunately um, points to the fact that things haven't changed a lot, whether you're in the South or whether you're in the North. And what I'm talking about is shortly after George Floyd's murder, and there was a strong community response. People in Roseville began to put up Black Lives Matter signs throughout Roseville, where I live here. And within a week or two, um, people started waking up and finding notes on their homes that someone had left telling them that if they didn't take these signs down, that their houses would burn. And so there were a series of letters left on four or five different homes in Roseville, threatening them with harm if they did not remove these Black Lives Matter sign or all lives are welcome here. The individual was tracked down through his fingerprints received zero jail time for making these terroristic threats to his neighbors. He was giving two years of probation and he has to attend a men's probably anger management group. And if he complies the uh, felony conviction for making terroristic threats will be removed from his record. Hmm. To me, this smacks of the same. So in that regard, here's a white male making terroristic threats against his neighbors for supporting Black Lives Matter um, after George Floyd's death. And he didn't even get a slap on a wrist. I, I don't I don't I can't even consider two years probation and going to a men's anger management group, even a slap on the wrist and he can have it expunged from his record. To me, it points out the not only the inequity that we saw in the Emmett Till case, but it's still going on. And I don't, yeah, I didn't mean to shift this conversation, but the coincidence couldn't be avoided. And, and, and this bill in particular covers, um, and looking, and looking back at the language, th- there's a particular, there are particular incidents that are covered well, there's a would not be so. So in this case, it doesn't seem like um, 
what happened in, in Don's neighborhood, but I would also echo that that happened in St. Anthony, New Brighton. It's happened several places across the Twin Cities, um, is outside of the purview of this one, which is looking at state, either sanctioned or, um, or, or would egregious ignorance <laughs> also put into the case of it? I'm just curious because, um, Don, your, your example makes me wonder, you know, um, George Floyd's example, um, would be state state sanctioned. Emmett Till, what's to stop a state or anybody, you know, saying, well, we didn't, um, we we didn't have anything to do with this. This was people. People did that. A thousand people in Duluth lynched Elias Clayton, Elmer Jackson, and Isaac McGee. What's to stop somebody from saying, well, people did that, not the state. Therefore, that shouldn't fall under this bill. Well, I mean, with any bill people can always say anything. I think that what we would really have to do is look at the facts and the situations of the case, right? And um, I think if you dig enough into what happened in Duluth, you will see some state actors. You will see state actors in terms of um, who allowed um, those uh, three individuals to um, be turned over to the mob, right? Like- mm-hmm. They were in jail. What, exactly. Ah, good point. Good point. They were locked up. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So, um, what was the role of 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 the state in terms of giving access um, uh, to Jackson, uh, Clayton, and McGee? And that, in fact, is a practice that is longstanding for the past century across the U.S., where black men were and and boys were lynched. Uh, with state sanction, uh, they, you know, they were incarcerated and they were somehow let loose, you know, by the jail uh, ward, warden uh, and allowed then turned over to the mob. I mean, this is not a coincidence, right? There, there's, there's that uh, foul play that, that we can turn to. We're going to shift gears a little bit more because I know there. Before we do that, Luz, can I just ask, so now what happens with this bill? So we will be going back into a session next year, um, uh, likely in February. And the uh, first step with the bill is going to be uh, getting a hearing for the bill. So it'll have to get a hearing, move through the committee process. And our hope is that we'll be able to um, get the bill either passed off the House floor as a standalone bill or have it incorporated into an omnibus bill um, for for consideration. So the first step is going to be getting uh, a hearing set. Thank you, Representative Richardson. We're going to shift gears now and go over to uh, another bill that you were the chief author, the Rondo Land Bridge Project. Now this one passed, correct? Yes, yes. This is one that we were able to get across the finish line uh, this year. And um, I I grew up in St. Paul. Uh, I, I grew up in the Frogtown um, neighborhood. And I grew up hearing a lot about Rondo. And the, uh, the pain and the trauma and the sense of loss uh, within the community, um, you know, even um, at the age that I was, was still so fresh for so many people um, in terms of the, the the impact of 94 running through the, the Rondo uh, neighborhood. And, you know, some of the things that really struck me as a young person, like, hearing some of the stories of Rondo, um, it was, you know, what always was really difficult for me to understand was the fact that there was a whole nother path for Highway 94 that would not have displaced a single homeowner. It was a Pierce Butler route, um, which if you drive up and down that route today, again, every time I drive up and down Pierce Butler, it's like, you know, you have to think of um, of the why around these things. And when we talk about the Rondo neighborhood and what, um, you know, and just the fact that it was the heartbeat of the Black community in St. Paul and the fact that it was flourishing um, in spite of all of the things that were going on um, in our state and in the United States at the time, 
uh, racial covenants, redlining, um, the fact that a black middle class had emerged and that there was um, this uh, amazing sense of community and to have people uh, be paid pennies on the dollar for their homes, pennies on the dollar for their businesses. And when they look at like the projected generational wealth that was extinguished within Rondo, um, it's over $270 million in generational wealth that was um, extinguished with running uh, 94 uh, through that area. And we have to, I think, sit in the uncomfortableness of the truth that that was, uh, that was, that was a policy decision. You know what I mean? This wasn't an accident. It wasn't like, oh, that just sort of happened. There were options put in front of uh, decision makers and they chose to run 94 through um, the Black community's uh, homes when they knew that there was going to be nowhere else really for them to go in St. Paul and buy a home because they were going to be um, uh not able to purchase a home because there were racial covenants that would not allow Black people to buy a home um, in surrounding neighborhoods. And the brutal practice of redlining where uh, individuals could not get loans in certain areas. And so that, uh, to me, um, was just like growing up in the trauma that this bill means a lot in terms of um, being able to think about reconciliation, it means a lot in terms of being able to lift up the stories of so many people who were uh, who were impacted by this. And I think we also have to set this upside next to the fact that um, Rondo wasn't the only neighborhood displaced with 94, uh, but the stories that I hear from individuals whose families were white that were impacted of 94, they tell these stories of abundance, of being paid a lot of money for their homes um, and to be able to determine like what their next move was going to be. So what does this bill actually say or do? So this is uh, $6.2 million. It's a planning grant. So what this planning grant will actually do is it will provide the opportunity for community outreach, um, for connection uh, with the community to really begin having the conversations of what should this Rondo land bridge look like. Uh, there's also um, uh, funding for thinking about what a, uh, a design could look like from the uh, engineering uh, perspective. But uh, really, this is going to be to start some really important conversations within the community um, about the needs and uh, and getting uh, community engaged around this. So this bill, um, you know, is is just the beginning in terms of thinking about those planning pieces. But the opportunity that is before the Rondo community is to think about um, affordable uh, um, homes, like. How do we create more affordable options for homes within the community? Um, and also to think about businesses, right? And uh, with new businesses, it's also a workforce opportunity to increase um, workforce opportunities within the area as well. You know, Representative Richardson, we talk a lot about patterns on this program. And the our country has a pattern of doing exactly what you just said, uh, building highways, what it was a 60, 70 years ago when highways were first becoming part of the city planning process or state planning process or federal, any of, of those or all of those, I should say, um, there is a pattern across our country doing just what you described, which is targeting black neighborhoods and dismissing the importance and the cohesion and wealth that existed in the black neighborhoods, displacing everybody uh, and, and not, not um, compensating them appropriately. Um, did you hear more about that, that testimony when you were authoring this legislation? 
Yeah, we spent a lot of time talking about the fact that uh, the experience in Rondo was not exceptional and it was not unique because this was happening in many uh, communities around um, the uh, United uh, around the United States, and you know I think where um, the other the other piece that we spent a lot of time talking about was not only sort of the initial impact of 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 people being forced out of their out of their homes and then you know um being forced with the reality that they weren't going to be compensated um well but also thinking about like the aftermath pieces of this that people don't often think about um that corridor um in 94 um, and like I said, I grew up in that corridor, me and my seven brothers and sisters, we all went to Maxfield Elementary, uh, you know, right, right on the, um, uh, on, on the edge of 94. That corridor has one of the highest rates of emergency room admits for kids and as with asthma under the age of five in Minnesota. And so, um, you know, as we, as we talk about Rondo, you know, we talk about the trauma of the loss. We talk about the 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 wiping out of generational wealth, and we know that in this country, uh, wealth is um, you know typically passed down um, through home ownership. And so the uh, the blow to Rondo was um, was was really significant, and we continue to feel those effects today. With um, the the lack of home ownership that we see within uh, the black community, there was a time in Minnesota where there was um, high home ownership rates for um, for for black Minnesotans, and you know, um, and this this is a situation of where we've gone backwards in terms of of of, of home ownership uh, rates, but there's also um, really significant environmental uh, issues that have uh that are that continue to be felt um along this uh along this corridor as well and as we think about this project in the future um and and if we're able to get to the next step of actually building you know securing funds to build a land bridge that um would also have some pretty significant environmental uh impacts as well um to help with uh uh with uh, pollution well, I, just, um, I, I, I like connecting the dots on these different patterns. You know, my wife's uh, family lost multiple houses because many folks were in the process of acquiring houses for their families um, in the Rondo neighborhood. And so you have many folks, you know, we talk about the, you know, the, the preparation of wealth. There's a whole generation that could have had a home ready for them when they got of age and not have to worry about that, let alone what they could do with college and other things. Um, but I know this also brings up a lot of old history. Um, and so right now I know there's community conversations between an organization um, that's been leading the idea around it, Reconnect Rondo, and a new organization that has started called Preserve Rondo, who has some very market and pointed questions about the health impacts. They, I think that some of the demands include a health impact study. It sounds like this uh, this bill is designed to provide the money to do the kind of engagement work that the uh, Preserve Rondo Group is asking for and, and feels should have already been done. And so um, as this money gets out for folks to begin to do that work and those impact studies are starting to be done and the impacts all the way around, it seems like it's connected to a whole lot of moving pieces. Yeah, you know, you you hit the nail on the head. It is to do that exact work. It's a, it's about um, engaging with the community. It's thinking about any assessments that need to be done. It's thinking about environmental assessments. Thinking about what design uh, could look like um, as well. And so those are um, those are the areas that these dollars would be uh, would be dedicated would be dedicated to. We're going to pivot then to another bill, and I understand this one did not pass, but we want to understand the context and the impact. It's the tobacco exception in public schools created for American Indian students. So this this bill um, is truly about religious freedom. And 
you know, for anyone who believes in faith, family, and freedom, this is the bill for them. Uh, because this uh, bill basically um, ensures that individuals have the right to express their faith um, within uh, within schools. So, for example, um, someone can go into a school today with a cross or a crucifix, and it's not um, it's not a it's not an issue um, at all. And um, within the work within my district with uh, indigenous uh, students, uh, parents, and even the school and, and school administrators, because I think, you know, to just even back up a second, you know, one of the things I was asked in committee was, is this bill addressing a real problem or is this bill designed to make a statement? And this bill um, came specifically from students, parents, and administrators within my district who were looking out and looking at how it was unfair and unjust uh, to tell students that they could not uh, carry traditional tobacco in pouches within our schools. And um, the we, we had a lot of conversation um, around this bill um, during the session and also within um, conference committee as well. And every person that I talked to when I made the analogy between there's no difference between someone wearing a cross in the school or carrying a pouch with a traditional uh, tobacco, they would say, I see where you're coming from, Representative. But unfortunately, the bill did not uh, make it across uh, the finish line to be signed into law. So Representative Richardson how were students prevented from carrying pouches with tobacco in schools? Oh, they're prevented because state statute uh, currently prevents them from carrying traditional tobacco or tobacco of any kind within a public school. So it's a state statute Correct. that just prevents children from having tobacco, right? Correct. Meaning cigarettes. Correct. And knowing that traditional tobacco doesn't have the nicotine that is in uh, cigarettes, it still um, it still applies uh, broadly within the way that the uh, statute is set up. So when Tobacco Twenty One passed, there was special law. There was a within the Tobacco Twenty One law. There's actually an exception that. Um, uh, allows uh, individuals under 21 to have um, access to, to just uh, traditional tobacco, but there is no exception written into state law as it relates to tobacco in schools. Okay, thank you. That helps me understand because I was trying to think, well, how, you know, if, if, if uh, traditional tobacco is in a pouch, which is how we carry it around, and it's not smoked, you know, we, we tend to put it out traditionally. Um, so I, I don't see how that would even, why that would be an issue in the first place. And that's why, that's what prompted my question to see if it was tied back to the use of cigarettes. Yes. And which is, you know, I, and I understand, you know, preventing our children from smoking cigarettes. We don't want that anywhere, but there, these things are too diametrically different. different items and for it to be caught up in that original statute now it helps me understand why there's a need to author a bill like yeah. this and it also speaks to the need to have representation at the capitol when bills are being drafted um so that these unintended consequences don't occur within the first place loose i'm i'm curious because um Thanks to Don. Don took us to um, the Malax Band of Ojibwe. Took us to the Malax Reservation and was giving us a tour around. And it was there that Don, you informed me of of the fact we were going by the area that 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 was designated for the tra for traditional ceremony. That uh, it, you weren't even allowed to practice that traditional ceremony until the 1978. Um, uh, Act um, American, American Indian, Indian Freedom and Religious Act. Yeah, and so I'm I'm curious. I'm curious. It's it's making me think <laughs> um, that this is all, we're already at risk of legal challenge because we're in violation of 
of a federal act, you know, and and I know that there's the state and federal has. I'm be, I'm out of my depth in that in that regard, but I'm just curious to see if that is in violation here and and in not passing this bill that we're opening ourselves up to legal challenges as a state as a re, as a result. You know, you raise a very important question, and it's one that came up within conference committee. We 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 talked a lot about religious freedom. And, um, and like I said, unfortunately, we weren't able to get this across the finish line, but um, the points that you are making are all valid. Well, we continue to learn so much from, from you and the bills that you've authored. Uh, we're going to then explore another one, the non-discrimination and access to organ transplants required and remedies prescribed. Help us understand that one. Yes. So the, um, you know, so, so many of the, the bills that I've carried are really, um, you know, they really take root in people's experiences and people's stories. And this is, a, this is, this one is no exception. Um, so within the uh, organ uh, transplant uh, world, there are organ transplant lists. And the space in which someone ends up on an organ transplant list is based on a number of factors. And this bill is really about ensuring that as you're looking at factors, let's make sure that we are not looking at factors that are discriminatory. And I really feel that this bill is a first step because this bill um, bans discrimination as it relates to disability, because what um, uh, tended to happen when um, individuals with a disability would need an organ transplant, they were being placed further down on the uh, transplant list because there were some very ableist ideas around, um, you know, suggesting that people with a disability would have a lesser quality of life, for example. Um, and the reality is, if any of us are lucky enough to live long enough, we are all going to have a disability at some point um, within uh, within within our within our lifetime. And so, this bill um, effectively uh, banned that practice of discriminating against people for having. Um, uh, a disability. And then we're going to continue to work on this bill um, next session to ensure that it applies to race as well, because there are lots of practices that are current, not only within our state, but within the United States as well, where individuals um, uh, that are Black, um, Indigenous, or other uh, individuals of color are being placed lower on, on lists um, for uh, reasons that would fit that definition of being discriminatory. Wow. You know, I was listening to a report not too long ago that uh, the statistics are nationally one in three people have a disability. And so if you don't have a family member who has disability, then look on either side of where you live, your home, and one of those neighbors has a disability. And then to, you know, the next step of that is the intersectionality between, you know, having a disability and being a member of the BIPOC communities. And, you know, then it gets really, really deep uh, after that. Unbelievable um, to know that this is a practice. It is. And it's and it's one that um, it's affecting a lot of people. I mean, it's affected my dad. Uh, he's been waiting for a kidney transplant for years and um, has lost uh, his space on the kidney transplant list um, uh, after a, a misdiagnosis, because that's the other piece, too, um, for folks um, within BIPOC communities, we're much more likely to be misdiagnosed with things um, as well. Um, my dad was experiencing some memory issues and he was diagnosed with Alzheimer's. And when they diagnosed him with Alzheimer's, they removed him from the transplant list because they were like, well, you have Alzheimer's. So it's like, we're gonna remove you from this list. Um, what we actually found out after several, uh, uh, several weeks, um, he didn't have Alzheimer's. He had hydrocephalus. He had fluid that was building up on his brain. And he had been in tremendous pain for over a month 
um, and had gone through all of these doctor visits to be uh, misdiagnosed. And he he needed a shunt placed so that the fluid um, could drain. And as a result of that, it's like he lost his place on the transplant list. And then you come full circle to, well, it's not Alzheimer's. And now you're back on the list in a lower in a lower space. So um, it's something that's happening to people uh, um, right now. And um, and and frankly, uh, no one should be discriminated against as they are in line for an organ uh, for an organ transplant. This is one of those areas that gets so challenging because uh, the the nuance um, is hard to address because folks have such a a, a black or white uh, view of discrimination, right? That somebody has to go, we you know, way beyond the bounds. You know, I'm I'm curious what the conversations have been like around um, the the compounding factors. So it it may not be. Um, it, you know, it may not be discrimination by a person moving you down the list, but a series of of inequities in a portion of the system that then puts you into a place here. Is that not also considered discriminatory? And how do you make that case? I mean, it just it just seems like it, like yet again we're fraud of having to prove the reality. On the whole, just because folks aren't willing to zoom out and see all of the connecting factors. Yeah, it's really a both and discussion because part of it right now is you could take um, two people who are waiting for, uh, let's just say, a kidney transplant. Um, And you can take a black patient and you can take a white patient that have like similar situations in terms of what their vitals look like what their need looks like, and that white patient will be placed above that black patient on on the list. So there are situations um, uh, where you could have a black patient um, who has better, what they would consider better um, uh, outcomes in terms of thinking that that transplant is going to be more successful, and they still may end up... (laughs) with uh, um, currently under under the system. And so uh, part of this is it's beginning to get at those challenges of race-based medicine that have been um, implemented because on, on, on one hand, doctors will say, well, we're just looking at the numbers, right? We're looking at the numbers and the numbers are telling us where to place people, but the numbers are different for white patients than they are for black patients. This, this correlates really well to the education data that we have when folks say, oh, it's income, it's socioeconomics and our race-based disparities in the education system, except for the fact that our data tells us that affluent black folks are still outperformed by lower income white folks. And so it doesn't hold, it, 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 you know, something else is still there. And so it was just interesting to hear that that correlation. Yeah, another, another correlation that came to my mind was... Uh, Part of the training I received when I became director of the chemical health division for DHS. And I remember vividly um, affirmative action, sitting through my, my director's training on affirmative action and having them present affirmative action and how we should handle that. And the bottom line was, Given the fact that, like the scenario you just explained, Ruth, where there's two individuals, one black, one white, and all variables being even, you can then hire whoever you want. It doesn't matter. You don't have to hire the black candidate. You can hire whichever candidate you you want. So when I'm sitting in the room with nine other individuals who are all white and I'm the only person of color. And I looked at my colleagues who were all going on to be directors and managers throughout the state. And I challenged them. I said, the only way affirmative action really works is if you step out of your comfort zone and hire someone you're not comfortable with. We end up then with these inequities because if I only hire someone who looks like me or thinks like me, 
then nothing changes. So given all things being equal, then what else is happening that we end up lower on the list? Well, and it, it goes right down to the discretion, right? Discretion is where the disparities grow, breed, and just just they 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 multiply. And one of the one of the reasons that um, this bill is um, so important is it does a couple of things. One, it raises awareness that this is even an issue, that this is something that is happening because oftentimes people. They, people have no idea that discrimination in organ transplants is happening. Because um, I even had some people when um, I introduced this bill, someone asked me what another representative was like, does that really happen? <laughs> and it's like, yes, it does happen. And it happens more often um, than you think. But the second thing it does as well is it, it provides a remedy, right? So it's not just about saying to someone that, um, you know, don't discriminate against people. It also provides a it provides a remedy and it, uh, provides a way to hold people accountable if they are in fact um, they are in fact discriminating. And the 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 legacy of our country is that um, you don't necessarily get. Uh, get change by just asking nicely, right? <laughs> um, you get change, you see change um, occurring when there are remedies that are put in place that then make it not economically uh, uh, viable to continue within the same, within the same uh, way. That's how our schools were desegregated, right? Um, so um, just understanding the fact that, um, you know, most of the disruption in this country that has done anything to address uh, discrimination, it's been through either lawsuits or it's uh, been uh, through the fact that there's been some sort of disruption in commerce. Think the Montgomery bus boycott. Follow the money. We've got about five minutes left, so I'm going to just uh, ask you with about two additional bills. I'm going to save the, the bigger one for last. So speaking of disability, you also authored a bill that um, intended to have a disability impact statement included in pre-sentence investigation reports. Can you walk us through that one, Representative Richardson? Um, sure. So that's another bill that did not pass uh, this year, but it would have required the courts to uh, take into account an individual's disability to try to understand if that disability might lend itself towards what they call a mitigating factor um, in terms of thinking about their sentencing. So, for example, if someone's disability, for example, made them highly susceptible um, you know, to being taken advantage of or something of that, uh, of that nature, it would give them the opportunity for the, the courts to have that information and determine if maybe a downward departure in sentencing, um, would be, um, would be appropriate. And we know, statistically speaking, um, a large percentage of individuals, particularly, uh, black uh, men and boys who are in the criminal justice system have a mental health disability that has not been diagnosed and or treated. And we also know that uh, 50% of folks, uh, people who are shot and killed by police um, are victims uh, who have a, a disability as well. And so this bill is particularly important for us to not only know about, but more importantly, advocate for and, and help you and the other legislators to get through the committees and uh, to the finish line, uh, both chambers there. Yeah, you make really important points because we know the individual um, demographic that is most likely to be killed by police are Black men with uh, mental illness. Absolutely. Now, the last piece of legislation is, is one that I think a lot of folks are going to be surprised about. And I know this crew in particular has a lot to weigh in on, so jump in. It's the dismissal of students uh, in kindergarten through third grade, uh, prohibiting that, uh, that 
conduct by teachers and school administration. Uh, and my understanding is that did not pass either, correct? No, it did not pass. So, and, and you know, last year we were um, successful in getting a preschool suspension ban passed within the the state of, of Minnesota. And, you know, when we look at um, the, the data in Minnesota, because we know Minnesota has some of the worst educational outcomes in all of the country, um, we rank in the bottom. Uh, Mississippi is outperforming us in, in, many, um, in many spaces uh, right now. In terms of students of color, not in the aggregate. Well, right? that's exactly the point that I'm getting to. Uh, oh, yeah, okay. because the disparities that we see within um, our uh, our Black and Indigenous students, um, uh, most specifically, the opportunity gap. I I believe I firmly believe start with the fact that we do not have an equitable opportunity to just even be present within the classroom. Um, here in Minnesota, Indigenous students are 10 times more likely to be suspended or expelled from school than white students. And I want you to think about that 10 times more likely to be suspended or expelled within the reality that Indigenous students uh, make up uh, 1.6% uh, uh, of our student population. Black students are eight times more likely to be expelled or suspended, and students with disabilities are two times as likely to be suspended than students without disabilities. And when you look at the data, um, and I encourage everyone to look at the data, because I want you to know why these kids are being uh, kept out of, are, are being kept out of school, uh, because oftentimes people will say things about like, what about the quote unquote violent children? And it's like, look at the data. We're not pushing kids out of school for quote unquote violent behavior. We're talking about um, things like uh, disruption, talking too much. Those are the types of reasons that kids are being pushed out of school. And one of the most chronic insubordination. insubordination, I don't like the way you rolled your eyes at me or the way that you looked at me or I, I didn't like that. I didn't appreciate that tone. Mm -hmm. Right. Like those are um, some of the reasons that kids are being pushed out. One of the most powerful hearings we had within the education committee, we shared the story of two students in the same school district what their experiences were like as it related to student discipline. We talked about a first grader who had a teacher remove, um, who took chapstick from her. She was, kept put, you know, little, little girl keeps putting chapstick on, causing a disruption. So the teacher took the chapstick, the student got upset, ran from the classroom. She was uh, suspended for creating an unsafe learning environment for running from the classroom because she was upset that her teacher took her chapstick. Same district, there's a student um, who becomes uh, dysregulated um, and he begins to uh, kick doors and hit walls and causes uh, a few thousand dollars of property damage. And the student was given a timeout. So I, I'm going to put a, a question to you. One of these students was black. One of these students was white. Which one do you think was the black student? <laughs> the chapstick Ser girl. Seriously? You know, Representative Richardson, um, I was one of four students in 1971 who voluntarily um, agreed I was attending Minneapolis Central at the time in 1971. No, St. Paul Central, of, but I won't hold it against you. And no hey, St. Paul Central. No problem. We, oh, got too. we got that rivalry that goes way back. And um, Black box finest. <laughs> and so we transferred to West High School. I lasted the longest. I was there I was I managed to stay there for two weeks before I was suspended for insubordination. And my insubordinate act was uh, a, a vice principal 
informed me that we didn't wear hats in school as I was leaving the school because I had an open prep lunch. So I, I looked at him, I acknowledged him, I said, okay, thank you. And I continued to walk because I was like five steps from the door. And so he stopped me again and he said, uh, I just explained to you that we don't wear hats in school. I said, yes, sir, I heard you. I'm leaving for lunch. He says, well, if you take another step with that hat on, I'll uh, suspend you for insubordination. Well, at the time, I wasn't that sophisticated. So I turned and looked at him. I said, what is insubordination? And he said, failure to obey orders. I said, well, sir, you didn't order me to take my hat off. You merely informed me. And I acknowledged that. Are you telling me to take my hat off? He says, yes, I am. So I took off my hat. And I took the other four steps and went outside. When I came back that afternoon, I was suspended. He suspended me anyways, because I don't think he liked the way that I answered his question. Right? I wasn't insubordinate. He didn't order me to do anything. He just merely informed me. And when I questioned him about it, I got suspended for insubordination. So I can see how easily that negatively impacts our our kids. Representative Richardson, I think you point out, and, and Don, I think that example is 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 right on at the at the egregious imbalance because we're not even talking about the reality that's in the data that says for the same behaviors, students of color are are suspended or disciplined at an equal rates, an equitable rates with their white peers. You tipped it even further and you said that folks who commit more egregious behaviors are 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 left without suspensions in comparison to students of color with far less quote unquote egregious offenses if you call it that at all so that alone in the data is 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 at present here and 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 I think it's implicated in in the story that you told Don uh because I watched it happen working in K12 systems where 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 folks kids of color just get under under uh white staff's skin in a way that uh that 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 there's a bristled reaction and 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 no and no room for any kind of regular adolescent behavior. And I'm talking about older kids. This bill is K three adolescent. <laughs> this this the developmentally, kids in this range are going to do this. Exactly. I wish all of them are going to do this. I wish Dr. And, Henderson would. And, and, and I wish not, Dr. Henderson, St. Paul Schools, would let me as a staff person get a kid. K through three to get me to the point of feeling like they needed to be suspended. Her first question would be to me about my skill level exactly. and why I'm even That's here. Right. That's right. These children at that age level have yet to reach the age of reason, but we know uh, through research that black and brown children are seen as older than they actually are by white um, authority figures and therefore at a higher risk of suspension, dismissal and, and things of that sort, right? And it's so harmful, the harm of being pushed out and being told that you don't belong has long lasting impacts that go beyond elementary school. And when you see these kids who um, experience this push out at an early age, there's the data to show you these kids are less likely to finish high school. These kids are more likely to have contact with the criminal justice system. What happens to these kids before age eight? You can start drawing the lines in terms of like what those outcomes are going to look like. And I think that, you know, one of the things that was really um, telling to me, um, I don't know if you all have looked at the data um, with uh, the COVID pandemic and with school going to distance learning and then going hybrid and then, you know, kids having the, you know, parents having the ability to choose, do I want my kids to be in-person or distance learning? You can see the numbers that there's a disproportionate number of BIPOC students who have elected to um, not go back with it, back into the classroom. And they've elected to stay in distance learning. And, you know, just one other quick story to illustrate why I think that um, a lot of that trend has to do with how 
um, kids are feeling within spaces and how they're being accepted or not being accepted. When my son was in uh, middle school, um, you know, uh, uh, Luz knows my son. My son, uh, you know, he's got a great Michael Jackson impersonation. Dancer, <laughs> he sure does. You know, this, I mean, this, this is, this was a kid with a lot of energy, a lot of personality, made friends everywhere that he went. So I get this call one day from school and they're like, uh, Sean, that's my son. They're like, um, Sean in class today, just talking, talking, dancing. We really need him to not be as big of distraction in class. So when he got home that night, I talked to him. I'm like, Sean, can't be dancing in class, right? Got to wait for class to be over to dance, right? Can't, you can't be talking over your teacher. You know, we had this conversation. So my son goes back to school the next day and um, I get a call and I'm thinking, I know after this conversation, he didn't go back in uh, the classroom dancing or talking. Well, the call was, Miss um, Richardson, Sean came to school today and uh, he was in class and he wasn't talking. And we got really concerned because he wasn't saying anything. So um, we, uh, you know, pulled him out of the classroom and we're asking him what's going on and he won't talk. He's not talking to us. So we're really concerned. What is he thinking? What's going on? We're not sure what to do. And so um, I said, you know what? I would like to bring Sean into school tomorrow and I want to sit down with you all and, and have a conversation. And when I got in the room with them, I was like, you know, you called me because at one point my son was talking too much. Now you're calling me, telling me my son is not talking too much or not talking enough. So I need you to write down on a piece of paper, how many words do you need him to say in a day for you to feel comfortable? And then how many words is, nope, that's too much. And also while you're at it, tell me how you want him to be within the space because the message that he's getting from you right now is no matter how he shows up in the space, it's the wrong answer. If he's talking, it's wrong. If he's not talking, it's wrong. You tell him and you tell me right now, what do you need from him? And I just got deer in headlights across the room. They were not ready for you. Um, we're so lucky to have you and, and uh, your kids are so lucky to to be blessed with you uh, as a mother watching out for them. Unfortunately, there are um, not a whole lot of parents who are empowered to do what you did, Representative Richardson. You are an attorney by trade. Uh, you're very bright and you're empowered and feel comfortable challenging the system. But unfortunately, a lot of our members in our community across the state and quite honestly, across the country are not similarly positioned to do that as well. Why we need this law and and what we haven't said in closing also is the stigma that then follows our children throughout the educational system and administrators see a suspension and, and they've already formulated an impression about that student with, without even meeting them and having them in their classroom, right? That, that child then becomes stigmatized Luz, can I just give a quick shout out to um, to Representative Richardson and you? I think you two have demonstrated something that we've talked about on Counter Stories a lot, and that is, you know, when the narrative when narratives get put out about what's important to us, oftentimes the things that are important to folk, communities of color um, get pushed aside for things that are considered more uh, more on the radar of the general populace of Minnesota. And every single one of the bills loose that you called out and, and Representative Richardson that I see you authoring are right in line with what matters home root to me. And it's not usually what gets presented in front of me in traditional media outlets around what are the things to watch? What are the bills to watch? Um, the, the, the bills that we've been talking about here haven't shown up on those lists for me. And I think it's telling uh, that women of color are, are calling these out in positions of leadership. So I just need to shout both of you out uh, for doing that work. And, and, to, and I just wanted to connect that pattern because it's something that we've talked about a lot on Counter Stories. Thank you, Anthony. Um, I worked at the House of Representatives right out of law school. So uh, public policy to me is just secondhand. Uh, you know, I, I, uh, I really am drawn to it because when laws are passed, we see the result but we often don't see the process. And we often, as you aptly said, 
it's filtered, right? The, the, the news and coverage about legislation is filtered through a lens that is not speaking to us. And so we wanted to create this series of conversations uh, that will still be ongoing. We have more legislators to invite uh, from our BIPOC communities to really help empower our community with knowledge so that they can be better informed um, and, and to really illustrate that voting matters. Voting matters critically as to who gets in to office and Representative Richardson is, is just a prime example. I, I get chills just thinking about how impactful she's been in just two terms. She's done more in the two terms that she's been at the legislature than other legislators have, have accomplished uh, with decades behind them. Uh, so thank you so much, Representative Richardson, for your work and your dedication to our communities. Well, I just want to say thank you for the space. I want to say uh, thank you for the opportunity uh, to be on this podcast uh, twice. Uh, there are few opportunities that I have to be able to be in space uh, with individuals like you um, talking about the issues that are so important to us uh, personally, uh, but also so important uh, to our, our community as well. And so um, I appreciate you uh, lifting me up today. Uh, sometimes you really need that lifting up because this work is exhausting with a capital E. Uh, so I appreciate all of you. You hear you. Amen. I'm Luz Maria Frias, Deputy Attorney General of the State of Minnesota. Any comments and opinions are solely my own and should not be attributed to my employer. Don Eubanks, Associate of Dendros Group, Cultural Consultant, and member of the Mille Lacs Band of Ojibwe Indians. Anthony Galloway, Executive Director of the Arts Us Center for the African Diaspora and Senior Partner at Dendros Group. And I'm Holly Lee, owner of The Other Media Group and producer of Counter Stories. And I'm Ruth Richardson. Thank you for having me today. Thank you. This program is a co-production of The Counter Stories Crew, The Other Media Group, and Ampers, diverse radio for Minnesota's communities, with support from the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. <laughs>